This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Today we'll be talking to Alpha Lowe, who is a specialist in complexity and um, the water cycle. Uh, looking forward to talking to you, Alpha. Um, would you like to say a little bit more about your background and your interests? Yeah, I'm a physicist who's been doing research in water, and then I uh, studying water on the uh, microscopic level, and then I switched to studying water on the macroscopic level, um, looking at the water cycles um, and how we might restore the water cycles to deal with um, some of the issues of floods and fires and drought. Hmm. Seems like, well, those issues are very timely. I think all of those are in the headlines right now. Um, what draws you to this work? And, you know, why do you think that uh, thinking harder about how the water cycle works and how interventions in it might be able to address some of those problems? Um, yeah. What do you have to say about any of that? Yeah, I became interested because I live in California and I was really concerned about all the fires that we're having each year. And as I researched more into it, I looked at how we could actually rehydrate the landscape. Um, so have the soil wetter, have the rivers running into more of the dry season, having the landscape and ecology more hydrated, and, um, and then also restoring what's called the small water cycle. Um, so there's, there's all these things we could be doing with water that could hydrate the landscape more that would help us lessen the wildfires in California. Mm -hmm. And in terms of interventions, um, there's, there's a lot of different interventions. And one of the things I remember first looking at was um, something that's called a swale or basically a ditch that's kind of dug along a contour line. And it's a, it's a common thing in permaculture. And this kind of simple you know, intervention in the landscape can actually help guide the rainwater as it falls down into the into the soil better. So as it kind of fills up the swales, it can actually help guide you know the soil to be more wet around it, and so the plants then would have more water around it. And also, in some cases, the water would then go downward underground and take maybe months to come out again in rivers. And if the rivers, um, if it's raining in the wet season and these rivers run dry in the dry season, it's possible that there's enough water moving slowly through the ground for months that would actually keep the rivers running into the dry season, which would then help um, hydrate the landscape in dry season, which is helpful um, in terms of the fires. And, uh, and these swales will also help increase the water table level. And if the water table level increases high enough, um, the plants, sometimes the roots can go quite deep and these roots can actually uh, able to access some of the water under the, underneath, the, underneath the ground. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like swales are one example of a kind of intervention in the landscape that might be regenerative or restorative. And right. I'd imagine in California and elsewhere, that's not starting from a blank slate, right? So there have already been interventions that have changed the water cycle dramatically. Um, can you think of ways that's um, those the water cycle has been altered in California or elsewhere and how that might have effects on, on drought or floods or wildfires? 
Yeah, so there's uh, in, in, in California and also elsewhere around the world, there's been a lot of deforestation and destruction of wetlands. So um, in the Central Valley in California, where it's now, you know, if you drive down the highway, you see all these signs that we need water. But, you know, 100 years ago, it was actually all wetlands. And these wetlands formed naturally in Central California um, uh, because the rivers would, uh, would, would run down from the mountains and, uh, and fill and, and fill up these wetlands. But what happened is that we uh, drained a lot of the wetlands because the wet soil was actually really fertile. And so we drained a lot of that wet soil to form farmland. And so um, if we let, if we let the whole nature restore itself, it would actually naturally reform wetlands. And this is a problem all over the world, um, Australia, Europe, you know, South America, they're draining wetlands. I mean, and this is a lot of deforestation. Um, and so this has an impact because the wetlands, you know, can help hydrate the landscape and also they evapotranspire water. Um, and it's, it's, it's not as well known, but like when we form rain, there's, there's part of the water is coming in from the ocean and then part of the water is coming up from the landscape from the evapotranspiration that adds together to create rain. Um, and so if you take away some of that evapotranspiration, um, then there's less rain um, inland. And um, we've done, and so whenever you pave over lands, um, you, you place nature with say concrete or asphalt, then that concrete or asphalt no longer can uh, absorb the rainwater. And often it just goes into the storm drain and then goes out to the river and runs back out to the ocean. So the continent's kind of losing water instead of if there was soil or vegetation there, that where that you know concrete or asphalt might have been it would evapotranspire um stuff up and so um and uh milan milan is a climate meteorologist who's studied he was from spain and the government asked him to look at why spain was losing its rain and he discovered that just the paving over of nature and destroying the soil was losing uh making the land lose evapotranspiration so then and that vapor transmission is adding to the ocean vapor to create rains inland. And so that's why Spain was losing its rains. Um, so that's, so these are the things that, you know, California has been doing a lot of. And then also California has 1500 dams and uh, these dams, you know, uh, do things to the water, like they, they capture the water. So it's not running as fast downstream. And then it, it passes a lot of it to the urban um, centers like LA and San Diego and also to the farmland. Um, so it, what, what that does in the farmlands, they, um, in, in California, at least, they don't use the water very well. As soon as it goes into the soil, there's too much of it. It actually, there's pipes underneath the soil that, that just takes out the water. So what's happening is that we're piping the water from the dams to these farmlands, and then the farmlands are just passing the water back out to the ocean. So the, the landscape is not using the water as much. And so and the dams are stopping the rivers, which is hydrating a lot of the wilderness in California. So a lot of that wilderness gets dried up. And so California becomes a lot more flammable um, because even though 20% of the areas like the cities and the farmland get more um, water, that 25% actually get less water and all that area becomes dry. And uh, they also add to the Santa Ana's, these winds that are hot, that blow inland and they fan the fires. And so... Um, so yeah, so we've done so many interventions in a California that's made it a lot more susceptible to fire um, and drought, and also floods because um, when the soil is degraded and uh, and you've taken away um, the ability for the landscape to absorb some of the water further uphill, then it comes downhill and uh, it creates floods further downhill. Mm -hmm. And so you talked about swales and other kinds of interventions. 
that we might see in techniques like those from permaculture as a way to change the way the water flows through the landscape. Um, that sounds uh, quite a bit different than the way that dams keep water in, that the drainage of wetlands takes water out, and other ways that we've altered the, the flow of water through the landscape through these industrial large-scale interventions. So what would be the difference in sort of nature between those kind of interventions and the ones that say permaculture would practice? Yeah, so one of the things say permaculture and also other um, practices like uh, natural sequence farming, syntropic agriculture, like there's other interventions you can do too, like say you could put some rocks um, in the path of the, of, the, of the rainwater in the landscape as it's running down, where, where the landscape is funneling the water a bit more. So then you could put a bunch of rocks there to kind of slow the water down. And then it also, cap if it's the very bare soil, um, it can capture some of the sediment as it flows downhill. Um, if there's a lot of rainfall, uh, you know, carrying some of the soil downhill and it captures it in front of these rocks, which then can actually guide plants to grow. Um, and so it's capturing the sediment to help plants grow and also slowing down water to help plants grow. And, and so it's, it, these are like tiny little check dams in the landscape, but it's quite a different thing than the big dams we put in the landscape because those dams actually capture a lot of silt. And, uh, but the problem is that silt is now being taken out of the equation and it's not being used to grow stuff. And so, um, and so that area in front of the dam is not very fertile. It's not growing a lot of plants and, and, and rich soil, which, it, which, which the little check dams are doing. They're, they're being used to grow plants and, and use the water to grow plants. Um, and, and I think, you know, people are not always aware of how important soil is and actually the creation of soil because soil actually takes a long time to generate in the landscape. So basically what happens is as plants grow, they die and then there's a decomposer animals like snails and microbes and other and mycelia that decompose back the plant material and turns it into soil. And so you have to have many cycles of this plants growing uh, using photosynthesis and, and you know turning the minerals of the earth into these plants and then um, they have to decompose again and that decom after they decompose it forms a solvent so the soil builds slowly over time um, and so we really want to take care of the soil but the problem with the dams is that they're just capturing all this soil and taking it out of the whole um, uh, eco regeneration process so we want to be using the soil as efficiently as possible to create as much you know biodiversity and ecosystem growth as possible. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, it seems like there's a, a parallel and not an accidental parallel between other ways our economy works, where what could otherwise be a resource turns into uh, a waste problem. You know, think of plastics and uh, uh, garbage and recycling problems, for example. So it's interesting to see similar sorts of issues pop up with a water cycle where, you know, silt which can be carry all sorts of nutrients um, through flooding that would go across the landscape would actually naturally spread those nutrients across the landscape. Instead, that's turning into a problem with the built up. Yeah. Of, just the, and then, um, the and then the dam. Yeah. 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 Uh, and the dams also kind of decent, uh, they centralize the water system. So, if we had many wetlands themselves uh, as our storage capacities and aquifers storing the water, that, that kind of allows the local area to have their own autonomy more. But now we're dependent on the dams and it's, it becomes monetized and whoever can pay more for the water then gets more of the water. And so we have things in, um, in California where the, the, 
certain uh, farm products that use a lot of water, like almonds and um, other things, if you could pay more, they, they, they use up all the water. And so that water is not being used to distribute more evenly throughout. The, it doesn't get decentralized across whole wilderness landscape as much. And so when you also kind of then centralize a lot of the water being pumped into the farms, then when evapotranspires, the, the rain is not as, water vapor is not as distributed either. And so you get more, um, more concentrated rains in those areas, but then other areas have less rain. And so it, it, there's this whole way, I mean, if you look at it as a dynamical system, as a complex system and follow the path of the water, each place you move the water is important. And so, um, and so there's this natural way that rivers actually do distribute the water vapor. So if, if we don't put levees on all the water system, rivers like they have in California and also elsewhere around the world, then the rivers can't overflow and rivers naturally overflow to create wetlands. And then, you know, in California, at least the beavers will also help this wetlands creation next to the rivers. And so the water will overflow in the floodplains and then lots of vegetation will grow in those floodplains and then it will evapotranspire um, that water back into the air. And so it can move inland and create rain, which is called the small water cycle. And so, so there's this natural process where, because the floods actually um, form what's called a scaling law. So it's not like there's a certain average of floods and it oscillates just a little bit around that when the water flow is actually obeys more of a power law, the, the, the water flow in rivers. It's, so a power law is more like earthquakes where you have earthquakes that are say, say size 10, but then you have an earthquake that's size 100 and then size, earthquakes that are size 1,000. Um, and so that's called a power law, which is different than, say, a Gaussian law, where, say, people, you just oscillate a little bit around five foot, say, nine or five foot six, that around that area. Um, but you don't have people that are 10 times as tall and then 100 times as tall. But with earthquakes and floods, you do. And when these floods reach the rivers, they actually naturally create wetlands uh, to the side of the river. But And, and these wetlands are very you know, many uh, in, uh, useful impacts on the environment. But as we kind of build a lot of levees everywhere and we actually have people building their houses on the floodplains, this uh, stops the natural, um, the natural cycle of water um, cycling through the environment. Yeah, one thing that you said was um, that uh, a lot of our uses of water um, uh, well, they require a lot, a lot of water that's being siphoned off from other places. And I know that that concept's been, there have been efforts to communicate that concept through things like the water footprint, um, or sort of, uh, which is an extension of the idea of the ecological footprint or the carbon footprint. Um, and likewise, um, if you've heard of, listeners are familiar with the idea of embodied energy. So each of our products contains energy. And um the embodied energy is the energy required to make that product. So likewise, a lot of our um, agriculture, even manufactured goods, there's a, an embodied water aspect of it. Um, yeah, so it sounds like when that isn't done in a regenerative or sustainable way, the water isn't servicing other functions in the landscape. Um, and you were just beginning to talk about some of those in terms of um, how the water spread over the landscape and how that services other, you know, ecosystem functions. Um, can you have any, give any other examples of, of why it's important for water to flow through the landscape? Yeah, so um, just, just talking about the embodied um, energy. So 
the sun is actually has a lot of energy and it's actually empowering this water cycle. So basically, as it heats up the land, it heats up the water vapor, it actually flows inland. So, so we can think that there's this huge pump of, of, of water inland, right? And, and that, that is a natural energy that we can tap into. And so if we actually grow this small water cycle where as, as the rainwater comes down into the soil and we absorb it and then evapotranspire it back up, it naturally pumps the water inland. And so we have more rain. But what we're doing in a lot of places around the world and in California is that we're spending a huge amount of electricity pumping that water using, you know, like burning coal or burning uh, fossil fuels to do that. And we don't need to do put all this energy. If we just kind of restore the environment, it will actually naturally pump a lot more rainfall and water inland. And we don't need to do this kind of more artificial way that man, you know, man has been doing. Um, and what's happened as we throw off a lot of this cycle is that a lot of places around the world are having more droughts and more floods. So um, say in Australia um, and, and fires. So because they've in Australia, they destroyed a lot of the wetlands there and they destroyed a lot of the farmland, uh, the, the forest to create farmland. Um, the, it, you know, over the years and as a more urbanization, it's actually dried up the land. And so a lot of the, so there's less and less water on the continent. And you can imagine as the continent dries up, it's going to be a lot more likely to have fires. And so there's huge fires in Australia a couple of years ago. And the problem with those fires is that it, um, when it gets too hot, uh, when there's too big of fires, it, it will actually melt, create this waxy substance on top of the soil. And so when the water now flows down um, on top of the soil, it doesn't go into the, when the rainwater comes, it doesn't absorb into the soil. And so up, wall, up you know, uphill, uh, there's less water being absorbed into the landscape. And so all the water flows across this waxy substance and comes down into the urban cities. And so it, so this year it's created huge floods in Australia. And so you often see the cycle of the droughts creating the floods, which then create the fires. And so there'll be a drought like a year or two before the, the big fires. And so we haven't seen this cycle in Greece, you know, where there's um, droughts and floods. And then in South uh, Africa, where there's droughts and, and floods happening. And then, um, you know, British Columbia was having this cycle. And so this, this cycle, which at first seems kind of strange, um, this drought and drought floods uh, cycle, is, is all to do with the fact that uh, the rainwater is not being absorbed properly into the landscape. And so if the rainwater is not being absorbed, it's not helping evapotranspire and creating more rain. So that's creating the more droughts. And also because it's not absorbing into the landscape properly, it's going to create a lot more floods uh, downstream. So, so, so the solution is basically to restore you know, the way the, I mean, there's many things we can do, but one central aspect is to restore how well our landscapes can absorb the rain. And that's why swales and increasing this organic content of soil, um, the more organic content in the soil, the more it can absorb uh, rainfall um, and, you know, uh, regrowing our uh, forest ecosystems and creating more biodiversity. That also helps with the, when there's more of a rich, biodiversity or a forest system there's more of a recycling of the water um, and there's more trapping of the humid air in, in on the leaves and stuff so create a cycle to capture that um, humidity in the area so biodiversity drought flood fires they're all connected yeah and i think really bringing in a, a systems perspective right now right yeah uh, um 
it's not something that occurs to me that water managers typically think about. Um, thinking about how, you know, with the systems perspective, we can see how when water moves across the landscape, it's not just moving from one place to another, but it's doing certain work. So it's transporting energy from place to place. So the hydrological cycle and the climatic cycle are closely linked um, on large scales and also small. And um, when it comes to the small scale, I think maybe you've mentioned this already, but there's the small water cycle, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's distributing water, but also energy and precipitation patterns. Um, can you think of, you know, um, any other examples of how that might be playing out? Yeah, uh, well, just to take this whole idea of complexity and maybe frame it in that, right? There's a lot of ideas in complex systems theory that are applicable here. So um, there's one idea which is kind of like basins of attraction or attract, uh, attractor states. So, so um, an attractor state is where the whole system moves towards that state. And there's, you know, there's different attractor states in the ecosystem. So one of them is um, if you can actually grow enough forest in an area that uh, and enough vegetation, that will be helping bringing in the water vapor from the ocean more. And it also, you know, forests they've discovered emits certain bacteria into the sky that possibly may play a significant role um, in creating rain. And uh, and then the, the whole forest and the rich soil helps absorb the rainfall when it comes so that less runoff flows back out to the ocean. So that creates an attractor state where it keeps that small water cycle where the water is going from the land to the air back to the land. Um, and so that's an attractor state. Now, if you, there's also a different attractor state where just say you start deforesting everything and paving over stuff, then you actually have less of ability to actually attract that rain inland. And so there's less rain. And so then there's more desertification. And so there's this feedback loop where the land gets more and more desertified. And so, so there's these positive feedback, which, which means more of a snowball effect. So where it can move towards either of these attractor states. Um, and you can see in China how, like, you know, because there's so many people there, like a lot of the land has been deforested and like they're having, you know, huge problems with floods there now. And, uh, and then they've been also, and yet at the same time, they've been losing a lot of their, um, their rain. So, so they've been gradually losing rain. And yet, you know, just last couple of years, there's been huge uh, floods all over China. And so they've created this. Uh, these uh, these attractor states that that that's that's to do with their certification that leads to these lead, the desertification leads to more of these extremes because when there's desertification there's less ability to create the small water cycle and to and to capture the rainwater to pump it back up and without that ability you're going to have these more extremes and so um, so that's one example of a of a of a complexity idea another idea is that. Um, in, in complex systems here, they, they, they model, there's something called emergence. So there's many different actors and they kind of interact in ways that actually emerge new forms of behavior. And, uh, and, and ecosystems go through what's called a series of, uh, of states. So there's, it's called ecological succession. And so different plants might uh, grow uh, somewhat at first, and then they, the, the initial plants then allow the next stage of plants to grow in. And so you have this ecological succession of states, and it's, it's kind of in, in, in dynamical systems called these metastable states that it goes through this kind of sequence. And so 
you want to be able to guide and it's entropic agriculture is a is a is a ecological system that kind of help tries to guide a lot more of this succession so does natural sequence farming and, and permaculture also recognizes this and so whereas a lot of the modern industrial farming doesn't recognize this ecological succession as much but you can really tap into this ability of the ecosystem to guide itself back to a functioning uh, area uh, a functioning system also mm -hmm. and so you mentioned modern you know modern agriculture and how that operates within a certain paradigm you know well, let's zoom out for a minute here so concepts like feedback loops emergence nonlinearity, you know critical thresholds self-organization those are coming from systems theory and complexity theory um can you give us a you know a high altitude view of what that exactly means what those theories entail and why they're important to contrast to the way that say the thinking that organizes modern agriculture works yeah so modern agriculture and permaculture behave quite differently from complex systems perspective. And you could say that permaculture and syntropic agriculture and those systems and agroforestry uh, are much more tap into the emergence and the collective uh, interaction abilities of the different agents in the system. Whereas uh, industrial farming doesn't as much because industrial farming is based on monocropping, which means that there's mainly one type of tree and it's based on synthetic fertilizers. Um, so it's degrading the soil and um, and it's also based on tile drainage, which is that there's drainage tile uh, pipes underneath the soil that drain away the water. So what that does is, I mean, it's very much based in a kind of engineering perspective of nature where you're trying to just engineer certain solutions, but you're not tapping into the multifunctionality um, of the system. So you're trying to keep say the plants, the water in the soil at exact right ratio to grow the plants the fastest. But it's not understanding that, for instance, that the soil itself is a certain life form. There's so many life forms in it and the synthetic fertilizer kind of destroys a lot of the life forms. And so over the decades, your soil is going to get less and less rich, which means it's less and less able to um, grow the plants better. And so while short term, you might be able to grow faster with synthetic fertilizer over the longer term, you're destroying some of the basic functions and the way that actually all the different agents interrelate in the system. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's kind of destroyed that complex relationships in the system. Um, and so it's no longer able to grow as fast. Um, and also by kind of, because there's, there, there's, there's, all sorts of ways the system is is guiding itself to do this small water cycle um, by actually creating this artificial system of dams and piping them through aqueducts and then draining it out through tile drainage. You've actually destroyed some of that ability for the system to actually create the cycle. And that, that, that small water cycle is a natural feedback loop for the water system that now has been destroyed. And that, that small water cycle is actually maintaining the order in the system. And so, um, so yes, yeah, so one of my hopes is to, there's a, there's a whole, you know, field of science now with complexity theorists. And I'd love to bring in a lot of these complexity theorists and nonlinear, you know, equilibrium uh, models and uh, uh, complex uh, adaptive systems ideas. Like a lot of it is very useful to show why permaculture, say, is a lot better than, um, than, than modern agriculture. Um, and and then there, and there's you know there's other also concepts like scaling laws and critical behavior, um, 
that uh, say uh, Jeffrey West, he just wrote a book called Scale and he showed how a lot of biological systems, he, he was a, well, it's not him, but the other people discovered a lot of scaling laws in biology and also cities. And he's kind of showing how these patterns arise. Um, and what I think they will find is that um, permaculture and, and modern farming systems will be, be, create different scaling laws or actually may even destroy the scaling laws in the case of these modern systems. And uh, that if you look at, say, the, 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 the yield of, of permaculture systems, it actually will increase more and more. And, uh, and you need less and less effort in some ways um, because the ecosystem will build itself up so that it actually is doing more and more of the work. Whereas, whereas the, um, if you plot, say, amount of work versus you know, yield for, for modern farming, you're going to have to do more and more work um, to, create, to create a yield because you're destroying a lot of the ability of the ecosystem to, to, uh, to, to, to enable itself to propagate itself from one uh, eco, a non equilibrium state to another. Um, and, uh, and it's also true that there's a, the sun, like the whole earth and the whole climate is a non equilibrium dynamical system in the sense that it's not at equilibrium. Equilibrium is when everything, you know, is all, say, uh, you put a hot glass of water in a room and then the hot water goes back down to the room temperature. So it equilibrates. So the temperatures become the same. What we what they found is that, uh, you know, temperatures fluctuate by widely too. It has a power law scaling and, uh, and that there's all sorts of wind patterns that are moving at multiple scaling law velocities. And like the whole system is it's in dynamical flux. And, uh, and we want to tap into that, all those dynamical fluxes, um, to actually to our benefit like we can use the wind that's driving the water inland to create rain and tap into those cycles for our natural usage of water we don't have to create these artificial systems with dams and aqueducts and, and entire tile drainage as much mm -hmm. and yeah all this the, the the theory is fascinating and you can dive as deep as you want into the theory, but also has really practical implications, right? So you're bringing some of those up just now. Um, you know, we're talking about dynamical flux and, you know, when it comes to practical ways of managing dynamical flux, you know, we have very down to earth expressions like sink it, slow it, spread it, right? And um, I know that you've given that some thought, I mean, even extended that to include other sorts of, um, yes, extend that to other sorts of um, practices. Um, you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so sink it, spread it, uh, uh, slow it um, is, a, is a phrase invented by Brock Dolman. So basically the idea is that when rainwater comes down, you actually want to slow it um, because as it slows down, like you put branches in the way or rocks in the way, um, that gives a chance more for the rainwater to infiltrate the soil. And also if it slows for the uphill, it, during floods it won't have so much velocity when it hits the towns um, and spread it is also allowing the water to go sideways more so you can then it can hydrate more of the landscape and that, that applies to the rivers too especially beavers which are able to build little dams and then the water then goes sideways and so it spreads across into the floodplains and then sink it is also that we want the water to go into our groundwater tables and replenish it um, and you know, in many places around the world, the groundwater tables are getting depleted. So the Midwest is using up all its water. California is using its groundwater. We want to actually guide the rainwater back into the, and, and this is possible. So you could actually flood farms in California. And some of the experiments are being done now and allow it during the, you know, during the wet season. And so that, that flooding the farms 
over several weeks, the water will actually go in and sink down into the groundwater and begin to replenish it. And Central California is going down by several inches a year. And so if we, but if we do this practice of, of replenishing the groundwater tables, uh, it will stop this flow downhill. And it also be a store of water for it to be used. So that's slow it, sink it, spread it. Um, and, uh, and I'm also thinking that because permaculture has kind of looked at more the land, it hasn't recognized as much the climate um, aspect of it. And so there's also a kind of climate permaculture. So we also want to um, uh, cycle the water, like the small water cycle. So, so it's sink it, spread it, cycle it. And then we also want to hop it inland. So like Francine, Francina Dominguez is a professor at um, University of Illinois who's been studying some of how uh, the water propagates and also uh, hydrologists, these Netherlands, uh, hydroclimatologist Van der Ent and uh, Savanije have studied how a water actually propagates through these small water cycles inland. And so if you kind of depave, I mean, if you kind of degrade the ecosystem, less of that water is able to go inland. And so, um, so uh, we want to kind of, wait, I lost my train of thought here a little bit. <laughs> wait, what was I discussing? Oh, we're talking about seeking, slowing, and spreading it, and how you've actually oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. had a okay. few other things to think about as well. Cool. So, uh, so yeah, so it's also hop it. So, so I would say sink it, uh, spread it, slow, uh, slow it, spread it, sink it, cycle it, hop it, um, would be uh, my expansion of Brock Dolman's uh, little maxim. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that applies like to other places in the world, say in South America, they're cutting down a lot of the uh, Amazon uh, 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 forests. And Antonio Nobre is a hydroclimatologist and he's studied and shown, and also Francina Dominguez has, has shown how like, as you cut down these forests and replace them with say crops, uh, cropland, um, that water vapor is not able to be passed along to the rest of South America. So as the, and, and Antonio Nobre was warning early on, as if you cut down the Amazon trees, um, you're going to create droughts elsewhere. Now it is happening in South America. And so Brazil is now a lot of droughts and also further down south in South America. And so uh, that maxim is we want to kind of regenerate that forest to actually hop that water around. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and that's true in, in all over the world. And so, um, you know, in India, Australia, everywhere, you want to hop that water inland and also cycle it inland. Mm -hmm. and, and all the while, um, by retaining its complexity and you're, you're cycling that water and you're sharing it, sharing with other species, sharing it with other humans, um, rather than diverting it just for um, singular purposes, right? Um, yeah. So that brings in the social aspect and uh, you're doing some work thinking about what it means to you know organize humans mm -hmm. in a way that's adequate to the complex systems that um, that you know the living systems that we're working with. Um, so you know what does that mean to change the way our human systems live so that they might live regeneratively and in harmoniously with the natural systems? Yeah. So I mean, I've talked to different watershed managers in different areas, and also different groups are doing things. And, you know, often the social aspect is even more work than the eco-restoration, the water restoration part. Um, there's a lot of uh, needing to bridge the different parties. You know, you want to get the different stakeholders in the land. Um, so, for instance, Jeff Gobel has been doing this in New Mexico, where he'd bring different demographics, the ranchers and the environmentalists and the local governments and 
you know, and that all might have different opinions about how the water ha has to be in that area. And so he gets them all in this facilitated process so that they can kind of agree. And then they can actually move into doing the, you know, you have to get everyone to agree to do those eco-restoration practices uh, before it can happen. Um, so there's a lot of work. In California, um, there's been a, you know, the beavers are able to do a lot of the river restoration, but you have to get the different governmental and the landowners to agree. And recently there has been some laws passed um, after a lot of work um, on the ground that's uh, to, to do this. And, um, you know, in, uh, you know, and, and so as a, as a, you know, you can, you can in your local area actually begin to form uh, watershed councils. So say you find some neighbors, you can invite them over for potluck, maybe watch some movies about regenerative water and this, uh, how to restore the water cycle. Um, and you could do various activities, maybe have a collective, go take a walk on the river and see what's happening. And then maybe do some investigation of the rainfall, the humidity, the groundwater levels, how much rainfall is being infiltrated, where it's coming from. Are you getting water piped in from elsewhere? How much do you depend on groundwater? Um, how much leaks out back out to the ocean? Um, and how much is it if you're in an area with floods? Like, you know, look at like how you could do interventions further uphill, um, maybe rebuild the soil, create swales or rock check dams to slow the water further uphill so there's less floods downhill. So say in Belgium or other areas, Australia, where there's these floods. Um, and then, so local homeowners can do things. And then where there's fires, like, if you are having fires threaten your area, you can actually look and try to get a wide range of landowners to actually start doing some of these practices like swales and check dams and enriching their soil, putting mycelia into it so it absorbs more water um, so that the rainwater is being infiltrated into the land. And the more your land and also all your neighbor's land is more hydrated, you're less likely to get fires in your area. And so um, we would like to create these watershed councils all around the world and tap into, you know, existing, there's also a lot of existing watershed groups to kind of create a movement to have local watershed uh, groups begin to do uh, these actions uh, um, in this decentralized way to restore the water system. And, and you're already working on that, right? Tell us a little bit about what that's all about and how it got started and where you're taking it next. Um, yeah, we like bringing people from around the world that's working in this water field and also people interested in it and uh and connecting with people who are working in water in their local areas and kind of coordinating these actions and also figuring out how to give a template um so that these watershed uh groups watershed councils can begin to develop it so and to use examples like transition town which was a which was a, a template that you know at least in some of the initial ones had 12 steps to it of like how you activate your town to become more cooperative, to actually deal with, you know, create energy descent patterns where you use less energy um, and depend less on fossil fuels and also to build, you know, community ecosystems and economic systems. Um, so they had a template for how you kind of regrow your towns and it spread all around the world, especially in the Britain at first and then it spread to the US and other places around the world. Um, and so, so exploring how to, kind of create a template, a blueprint for different uh, local watershed areas to to activate their watershed. Uh, oh, very cool. Um, we could we could wrap this up, but this has been super interesting. Um, where could folks find out more about the Regenerative Water Alliance or uh, or how to think like Alpha Low about water and complexity? I have a, I have a newsletter. Um, it's on Substack, which is a 
host for a lot of different newsletters. Um, it's called climatewaterproject.substack.com. Uh, so climate water project yeah very cool um i guess are there any last thoughts you want to share before we before we close um no that's great thank you all right it's been fun alpha thanks thank you